You are listening to the East Point Church Sermon Podcast. We're a church that exists to glorify God as a gospel community that is growing in faith and reaching the world. From wherever you are listening, we hope that you are encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. All right, open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. It's crazy to think, but we are officially in the last chapter of the book of Philippians. Last chapter, chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And next week, you don't want to miss it, because next week is the series finale. All right? It's going to be the first series finale of our first ever book study as East Point Church. And we have some cool things that we're going to do next week to commemorate the end of this journey. Do you remember where we came from? We should get like a little slideshow, right? Uh, from week one, our journey. We set out, we all looked really nice. And then a 13-week road trip, we're all like, what? Right? But no, seriously, I told you at the beginning of this journey that we would not be the same by the time we got to the end. And uh, how many of you are not the same as when we left? How many of you have had the Lord speak to you over the last 13 weeks? How many of you have had scripture highlight and jump off the page as God said, this is my word to you? Every week here at East Point Church, God is speaking to us as we go through his word. So we're continuing in chapter 4, the second to last, the penultimate episode of this series, and the title of my message is One Hit Wonder. One Hit Wonder, baby! How many of you know the phenomena known as a One Hit Wonder? You see individuals, they bust onto the scene, they grab the attention of the watching world, and they are filled with potential. And so we see athletes, check it, right? No, not me, not you, not again, all right? We see athletes come out of college, and they're drafted, and they are compared to the superstars of yesteryear. And everybody says, whoa, watch out for the record books, because this is the next great thing. We see actresses debut in these awesome movies, inspiring performances, and they're nominated for a million awards. And they go, wow, she's the next big thing. So much potential. How many of you listen to that new single, right? It's gone viral. It's everywhere. Oh, I can't stop playing that song. I just can't wait till he drops the full album, because this song, oh, man. So much potential. You guys saw the commercial for that new TV show coming out. Oh, it looks awesome. This is the new show. This is the show we're going to tell our grandkids about. In the pilot, episode one, I'm hooked. I can't wait till next week. So much potential. So much excitement surrounding the beginning. There is so much promise that we know where this is going. We are about to see greatness unfold. The athlete, within a few years, he is cut from the team. He is branded as a locker room cancer. And we're all going, what happened? It was a one-hit wonder. We see the actress, right, who's nominated for so many awards. She's typecasted. She can't play any different role. It's the same person in every movie. What could have been? And the full album came out, and it was an absolute flop. Not a bop. That TV show you were so excited about, it doesn't even make it past episode 10 before it's cut off of the air. All of these things had great starts, but they were unable to stay firm. All of these things had so much potential, but they were unable to maintain their position. They were unable to keep it there. These were one-hit wonders. One-hit wonders. So this morning, as we go through the letter to the Philippians, we see that Paul is trying to eliminate this phenomenon from the church. 
Paul is trying to eliminate a situation where just like the athlete and just like the actors, we're left wondering, what happened? How did it end so poorly? Why didn't it work out? Why couldn't they maintain their position? Why couldn't they just hold firm? And Paul says, may that not be the story about the church of God. And so he's going to give some instructions this morning. He's going to give some very frank calls to action. And I want you to imagine, as I read this, I want you to imagine that you're a Philippian, you're sitting in the audience, and he is saying these things to you very directly. But they're important. Because if he did, it will ensure that God's people don't simply have a great start. These are the instructions that will make sure that God's people endure to the very end, that they will maintain their position, that we will stand firm. No one can wonder the church. So he's going to speak here. I'm going to read the first nine verses. That's our whole passage. I'm going to read the nine verses, and I'm going to go back to the top of right now. Are you ready? You have your Bibles open? Here we go. Chapter 4, starting in verse 1. He says this. Therefore, my brothers... Whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. That's our word this morning. And so here we have Paul, who is discipling them, right? Paul is teaching them how to live for Jesus, and we see that he is speaking into their lives this morning in some pretty profound ways. He's speaking with a strong voice. He is not mincing words. This is direct. And he's speaking to real concerns. He's putting his finger on deep issues in their lives. And so we saw him. He, he talked about the elephant in the room. He talked about some unresolved conflict. He talked to them about their, their anxiety and their prayer life. And then we also saw him even talk to them about their thought life. Talking about the very thoughts that are in their head. He's in their business, isn't he? Like a good disciple, he is speaking into their life about the real, nitty and gritty aspects of following Jesus. So even though he's in their business, check it out. He does it in such a way that they listen to him. He's about to speak some, you know, pretty frankly into their lives, but he does it in a way somehow that it doesn't feel like an overreach. It doesn't feel like an unwelcome intrusion into their lives. He speaks in such a way that they don't repel it, but they welcome it. He's saying that 
takes hard things, but he does it in such a way that they receive it clearly. They wrote it down. They captured it. They made copies. They passed it to all the churches nearby. They go, yo, you've got to check this out. And so how does Paul speak into their life so directly? And it doesn't come too hard. He speaks into their life, but he doesn't come too soft. He's not too vague. He's just right. Have you ever had someone try to speak into your life that just felt like, ah, no thanks. Just a little gross, right? Have you ever tried to speak into somebody else's life and they were like, ah, no thanks, right? How does he do this? How does Paul, this awesome disciple maker, how does he speak truth? Well, let's check it out, beginning in verse 1. He says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. See, the author here, he is combining a beautiful blend of love and truth. You see, Paul understands that love and truth are not opposites. They are simply two sides of the same coin. And so should we speak to each other in truth or in love? Yes. Yes. Everything that Paul is about to say, all of the truth that is about to come out of his mouth, it is birthed out of a genuine love and genuine care. This dude is dripping with affection. There is evidence of authentic relationship and genuine concern all over this passage. And so look what he says. He calls them my brothers. Any Spanish speakers in the room? Mi amigos, right? You know in Spanish you use a masculine word to refer to mixed company. Same thing in Greek. So he means my brothers and sisters. He's using familial language. He says, I love you. I long for you. I like being with you. And I can't wait to see you again. His beloved. See what he's doing here, right? He is not simply assuming that they know how he feels about them, right? I can say whatever I want because you know I love you. No, no, he doesn't take it for granted. And he explicitly, in wisdom, he explicitly repeats it and affirms, I love you. I am for you. I am with you. I like you. I care very deeply about you. And that love leads him to speak truth. You see, in our culture, if you love someone, right, you would never say something that makes them uncomfortable, right? Love says, whatever makes you happy, right? Rainbows, sprinkles, right? Kissing, it's just, just, if you make somebody upset, whoa, that's not loving. But you see, the way that the Bible uses and demonstrates love, love in the Bible doesn't say whatever makes you happy. Love in the Bible says whatever is good for you. Love in our culture says whatever puffs you up. And you know, love in the Bible says whatever builds you up. Right? Whatever is good for you in the long term, your well-being is of my concern. That is love. So Paul loves them. And out of this love, he's going to speak truth. And what is the truth? What is the difficult call to action that he's going to give the church? What is the truth that he is compelled to look at them in their eyes and write in love? What does he want to tell them? Well, if the, it's one message. I can summarize it in two words. He looks at the church and says, church, I want you to stand firm. Church, stand firm in the Lord. Do not be moved from your sure foundation. As a church, we must maintain our solid stance. We must keep our sure footing. We must keep this stable position. And we can't be moved from the mark that 
God has placed us on. X marks the spot. Stay in front. East Point Church, the Lord wants us this morning to hear his word. Stand firm. We're standing on the gospel. We are built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And we must not stumble off the mark. We must not trip into error. We don't want to be led astray from that spot. We don't want to be deceived into trying to find a new spot. He says, stand firm. Church, may we not be blown off the spot by the winds of wayward doctrine. May we not be pushed off the spot by the cultural intimidation that opposes the message of Jesus Christ. May we not be pulled off the spot by the allures and the temptations of the old pursuits of our lives. The Lord is calling us to stand firm. Stand firm, church. That's it. That's the message. Stand firm this week. Stand firm this year. But here's what I love about scripture, right? If you got this in a fortune cookie, you'd be like, but what does it mean? Stand firm. It's cryptic. It kind of feels good. You got some lucky numbers, but I have no idea how to do that. The Bible is not like a fortune cookie. He gives you the call to action and then he shows you how. He says, church, I want you to stand firm like thus. Like thus, right? I'm going to, everything that follows here is answering the question, how do I stand firm? He says, stand firm like this. And so he's going to give us three pieces of instruction, three calls to action, three commands that are teaching us how do we stand firm? How does East Point Church stand firm and maintain our footing on the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's what we see in the rest of our passage. Three things. Are you ready to stand firm? Say it with me. Say, stand firm. Stand firm. Thank you. I will. Let's see how we do that. I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes. I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. How many of you have a name and you were named after a character in the Bible. Samuel, Daniel, David, Xander. No, sorry, not Samuel. <laughs> I've never met somebody named Yudia or Sinsuke. <laughs> Their names are in the Bible for sure, but it's not good. There is a serious conflict brewing between these two ladies, Yudia. I don't know exactly what they were beefing about. I don't know the particulars of their fight, but I, knew, I do know that it wasn't a small one. I do know that it was big enough that Paul was hearing about it thousands of miles away. Like, imagine our missionary friend in Ukraine. It's like, hey, did you hear about East Point Church? Yeah, Roy and Ty. Oh my goodness. <laughs> this is a big conflict. This is so big that he feels the write about it in an open letter that's going to be read among the whole church and he names these ladies by name. This conflict must have had such a threat to the health of the church that Paul feels the need to even publicly call for intervention. So imagine it, friends, right? Imagine it. There's a fight in the church. There are two people at odds. Go figure. That's normal. Welcome to life. I don't like that church. There was a fight there. Yeah. We're humans, right? So that's normal. But here's the 
marriage where it got unhealthy, that conflict was allowed to fester. And before we knew it, there was lines drawn in the sand, there was battle lines, and there was two halves of the church, and hashtags were trending. I stand with Sintiki, and I'm with Yudia, you know, like the feeds are blowing up, nasty DMs are being sent, people are being subtweeted, not so passive-aggressive, aggressively passive-aggressive posts are being made on social media. It is nasty. You walk into that church and you just feel like, oh, this is gross. And Paul knows. Paul knows that you cannot stand firm without unity. So he says to these ladies, and he says to the whole church, he says, if you're going to stand firm, then you must do it like thus. You must destroy disunity. Unresolved conflict will move you off of your mark. Disunity is a cancer. What's that different? No, disunity is a cancer that will halt the mission of the church. It will affect your ability to form meaningful relationships, which are the soil for discipleship. And so if you don't have relationship, you don't have anything. And so Paul, he says, destroy it. Do not stand for it. Do not become accustomed to its presence. Do not fall into the trap of thinking that unresolved conflict, ah, it's just like, not in the kingdom of God, it's not. And so he looks to these ladies and he entreats them. Not a suggestion. Not like a little tip. Hey guys, here's like a little tip. Maybe you should try work. No, no, he's begging. There's an earnest plea. He says, I entreat you for all that is good in this world. I'm asking you, I'm badly wanting you to destroy this disunity and to agree. I need you, church, to agree. That doesn't mean you have the same opinion on everything. If you've been tracking with this series, you know that agree doesn't mean that we have identical and uniform preferences. No, but to agree means to have a posture, to have a mentality that preserves side-by-side unity. To, to agree means we understand, hey, we're on the same team on the same mission, and so we're going to preserve that unity. To agree in the Lord is to have a mature attitude that understands that we can still live in unity, even if we don't have the exact same preferences and opinions. Ladies, agree. Be of the same mind, he's saying. And so he calls them friends. He's in their business, isn't he? He's like, ladies, I'm calling you up by name. I want you to agree. But notice his motivation, the motivation, his appeal. He says, I want you to agree in the Lord. The motivation for maintaining unity is our mutual faith. He says, agree in the Lord. Which means this is not just a positive message. This is not just, just get along. This is not Paul simply wanting to have greater harmony and just good vibes, man. Just be no, no, the motivation is not just positivity. He's saying, in light of your mutual standing in Jesus, destroy this unity. Agree in the Lord. The motivation for our unity is our mutual faith. In God's family, we are protecting, we are fiercely preserving unity, not out of a human desire to be philanthropic, no, no, out of an understanding of the reality. He has made us on the same team, so we will act on it. He has brought us into the same family, so we will act like it. He has made us brothers and sisters, and so we will act like it. We will agree, not because we're cool, we are agreeing in the Lord. He has made us one. 
That's why Paul, even as he says, agree, he's reminding them of all of these realities. He says, don't you remember? We labored side by side together. Same team. Don't you remember? We are fellow workers. Same team. And then here's the one that gets me. He says this, don't you remember? Our names are in the book of life. We need to maintain a side-by-side -side unity because our names are written side-by-side -side in the same book. And so we fear, we allow unresolved conflict to fester to the point where we can't even sit in the same row as somebody. He says, don't you realize your name is written in the same book? We allow unresolved conflict to fester to where we won't even look at this person in the eyes. We won't even join their community group. And he's like, you're going to spend eternity in heaven forever in light of our mutual faith. Maintain unity. Destroy this unity. Do what it takes, friend, to keep the space between us clear. Have the hard conversations that are necessary. Be willing to ask for intervention and help if communication has broken down. Agree in the Lord, ladies. Agree in the Lord, he says. And then here's what's really cool, right? So he's talking to the ladies. Yudia and Sinsuke agree in the Lord. And then he looks above their heads and he goes, hey, y'all, plural you. Hey, I want you guys. Help these women, right? He says, help these women to agree in the Lord. You see, friends, unity is a team effort. Unity is a team effort. He appeals to the people that are around them, and he says, hey, sometimes it takes help. And so I know what you're thinking. Well, that's not my business. When unity's at stake, it is your business. If you are close enough to help, if you are close enough to the situation to speak truth and to help be mediated, help these women. Help destroy this unity. Friends, we can help these women. We can help destroy this unity when we refuse to be safe places for gossip. We help destroy this unity. When we remember that there are two sides to every story and we don't just quickly, like a fool, pick up somebody's offense, we help destroy this unity. When we remind our feuding friends of their mutual faith and of the fact that they're on the same team, we help destroy this unity. When they come to us and we refuse to stoke the fire of their grievances and their offense. Oh, he says, what to you? He, no, what? Stoking the fire of their offense. When you don't do that, you're helping destroy this unity. When you encourage people to take their grievances directly to the other person, instead of triangulating this mess and calling it venting, you destroy this unity. Help these women. Help these people. Church, destroy this unity. And sometimes it's a team effort. But we need to do it if we are going to stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm in the Lord by destroying this unity. Let's look at the second thing he calls us to do in the next verse. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
So here we go. Not only does disunity threaten to move us off of the mark, we learn that also anxiety threatens to move us off the mark. Anxiety threatens to take our feet and our eyes off of our foundation and to start to drift elsewhere. And so what's the source of anxiety? Jesus taught us, didn't he? We worry about money. We worry about food. We worry about our clothing. We worry about what people think of us. We worry about our grades. We worry if the plans will work. We worry if we're enough. Do we have what it takes? And we worry about these things, and it threatens to move our feet. The little voice in our head says, if you don't worry about these things, who will? If you don't figure out a solution, who will? And we listen to the little voice, and slowly our attention and our heart and our mind will no longer stand in firm. Right? Isn't that how it works? And so instead of being known as a person who is filled with rejoicing, instead of being known as a person who is reasonable, who is firm with good sense, we're now crippled with anxiety. There's fear, there's a pervasive worry about the needs that we face. So Paul says, I want you to stand firm and if you're going to stand firm, you need to do it like this. You need to depend on God in prayer. Depend on God in prayer. Friend, prayer relieves anxiety. Prayer relieves anxiety. So we're faced with two options here, right? Option A, he says don't do it. He says do not be anxious. Do not engage in the anxious toil that fixates on how you can provide for yourself. He says, instead of that, take your needs to the Father who is your provider. Anxiously worrying about how I can provide versus coming to my provider, capital P. And so he says three of the words. He says, in prayer, in supplication, make your request. All of those words are saying the same thing. Bring your needs to the Father. Bring your needs to the one who has it all. Bring your needs to the one who is unbelievably for you and with you and cares about you. Bring your needs to the one who doesn't roll his eyes at every request. Oh, you need me again, huh? Keep the lights and care for you. Bring your needs to him. And here's what happens. As we bring our needs to the Father... And as we practice reminding ourselves with thanksgiving, remembering how he's already met our needs in the past, as we do that in everything, here's what happens. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, God gives you a peace that protects your anxious heart. He gives you a peace that shields your racing mind. As you realize God's God. You start to realize the Lord is at hand, meaning He is near. He is right here. He is present with us. We don't have to flag Him down from far away. The Lord is right here with us. Tell Him what you need. Tell Him what you need. Does that mean things change immediately? I wish. Nope. You may not even understand how it's going to work. You may not even understand the plan on exactly how he's going to provide for you. But God gives you a peace that surpasses the need for understanding that plan. Because you realize, I don't know how it's going to work, but 
I know this. My heavenly Father is taking care of me. I'm going to be okay. And so that little voice, it says, well, if you don't worry about it, who will? And Jesus roars back, your heavenly Father will. If I don't figure out my needs, who will? Your heavenly Father will. That's what he says. And so, friend, what are you worried about right now? What are your needs? What are the things that are anxious, anxiously keeping you up at night? Maybe you haven't even shared it with anybody because you're embarrassed. And you're like, no, 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 I'll figure it out. I don't want to put anybody out. What do you need? And then tell me this. Are you depending on God in prayer? Here are some questions to help you determine if you are. Number one, do you spend more time worrying than you do asking God for help? Number two, do you talk to your friends about your issues more than you talk to God? Number three, do you spend as much time praying as you do planning? Do you spend time in prayer recalling and thanking God for how he already takes care of you? Last question, when you need advice, where do you go first? Who do you call first? If we are to stand firm, then we must depend on God in prayer. And so why don't you practice this week? Practice, write that literally, write it down. What do you need help with? Where are your needs? What are the things that are causing you to be anxious and toil? And you say, well, I don't even know what he would do about it, so why would I come to him? That's not your business. You're not God. Let him do it. So you come to me and say, God, I just need peace. And so I'm going to talk to you about this because I need peace. And I need to remind myself, if nothing else, that you're in control. Practice this. Bring it to the Father in prayer. So we're here this morning. We want to stand firm in Christ. We have two already. Let's see what the third one is. The third and final one. We see verse 8. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Church, if we're going to stand firm in Christ, we need to, number one, destroy disunity. Number two, depend on God in prayer. And number three, we need to guard our thought lives. You need to guard your thought life. See, when you become a follower of Jesus, it affects every aspect of your life. Following Jesus is not like downloading a new app, you know? Like, it's pretty, pretty much the same, but I got like a cool new little app, just a little add-on, and if I want to enable push notifications from Jesus, he's allowed to text me. You know, like, no. Following Jesus is not like getting a little add-on. Following Jesus is like throwing away your old phone into the bottom of the ocean and getting a brand new one. And oh, by the way, he owns it, and he tells you what to download on it. And everything that you do on that phone, you're saying, God, it's for you, for your glory. When you become a follower of Jesus, it's not about going to church once a week. It's not about being, you know, a, a volunteer in your community and just giving it back. Welcome to East Point. Jesus owns everything. Becoming a follower of Jesus is saying every aspect of my life is now oriented around you and your teachings and your way of life. And what you say goes, there is not a square inch of my life about which Jesus does not scream, mine. It's mine, all of you, mine, he says, when you become a follower of Jesus. 
all my I go to church. I wake up early. Not like first gathering early, but you know, still. I give money. I volunteer. I go to that group at that lady's house once a week. Now, Jesus, you want to talk about my thought life? Too far. Sorry, friends. This is what it means to call Jesus a Lord. He is master. And so he speaks about every aspect of our life, including our thought life. And so listen to what the Lord says. He says, think about these things. Think about that, friends. The fact that he is narrowing down the list to these things as opposed to those things, that tells us that not everything is worthy of contemplation and reflection. Not everything is deserving of our thought life. Let me say it this way. Not everyone is invited to the party in my head. Party in my head, party in my Not everyone is invited to the party in my head. There's a party, friends. But there's a guest list. And there's a bouncer at the party in my head. And when people try to roll up into the party in my head, the bouncer is like, whoa, 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 let me check the list. And if you're not on the list, I'm going to take you captive and make you disappear. There's a party in your head. There needs to be a guest list. So what's on the guest list? Let's read the guest list. He says this. He says, whatever is true, does your boy match reality? Or are you contemplating myths and lies? Think about things that are honorable. You should have the kind of ideas that are so worthy of honor that when she walks into the party, everyone stands up out of respect for that idea. Man, this is, there's such a moral virtue and integrity that it demands respect. No, it doesn't. Not the list. Out of there. Here's what else is on the guest list. Whatever is just. Is it right? Does it treat people fairly? Is there integrity? Is it pure? Is it worthy of someone? Is it fitting of someone who has been set apart to God? Is it holy? Is it the kind of thing that needs to hide in the dark and shame? Or can it stand boldly in the light? If it can stand bold in the light, come on in, baby, party time. If not, out of there. Not on the guest list. Not on the guest list. Is it lovely? Is it good to behold? Is it commendable? Is it something that you admire and something that you can recommend to someone else without any reservation? I'm going to repost this. But, ah, spoiler alert, just so you know. Is it morally excellent? If you come across something that is morally excellent and virtuous, let him in. If you come across something that is worthy of praise, things that deserve to be applauded and spoken highly of, oh my goodness, let them in. Friends, if you find these things, they're on the guest list. Think about these things. Think about these things. Intentionally have these thoughts in your life. Don't just let them cross your mind. Don't just be aware of them. Fixate on them, he says. He says, think about them and practice these things. Think about these things and practice these things. Reflect on them so deeply. Value them and contemplate them so well that you can't help but live your life accordingly. Friends, what is on the guest list for the party in your head? What are you thinking about? What are you dwelling on? What are you fixating on, which then causes your feet to follow? Because you know that what we dwell on is what, how we live, right? 
So what is on the guest list for the party in your head? Do you want me to tell you what my guest list has been? Do you want me to tell you why this is such a good reminder to me this morning? Because this is the guest list that I've been using. This is second hypotheticals 316. Whatever is funny, whatever is trending, whatever is popular and entertaining, if there's anything exciting, if there's anything that validates me, if there's anything that confirms my biases, if there's anything that gets likes and reposts and retweets, think about these things. That's my guest list. That's the filter I use. That's what I have in the door as I check ideas coming in. And Paul says, you need a new guest list. You need a new guest list. Because none of those things are going to lead you to the Christ-centered life. None of those things are going to help you stand firm. If we're going to stand firm, we need to guard our thought life. Because we will walk where we dwell. There's no way around it. You want to stand firm. And you're like, but why are my feet keep sliding this way? Because you will walk where you dwell. And so we struggle to walk in purity. What are we dwelling on? We struggle to be passionate about justice. But what are we dwelling on? We struggle to walk in things that are commendable and lovely and worthy of praise. What are we dwelling on? If we're going to stand firm, we need to guard our thought life. Man, this guy is all up in their business today, isn't he? He is. Because he loves them. And because we love you, church, and because God loves us. And he wants us to stand firm. And just like last week, we're reminded that we have mature followers of Jesus slightly ahead of us who can say like this. And so Paul reminds them, I know I'm calling you to destroy disunity. I know I'm calling you to depend on God in prayer. I know I'm even telling you to, to guard your thought life. But don't forget what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. We're in it together. We're in it together. There's no pecking order in the kingdom of God. There's no levels, right? Like we're like super sane and then we're pastor and then we're out. We are all on this race together. And so we will see those who are slightly ahead of us and needing to do the same thing in order to stand firm. Stand firm. And so here's how I'd like us to end. I want you to think about these three instructions, these three calls to action, and I want you to ask yourself, which of these three is the Lord speaking to you to practice this week? Well, Sam, I need all of them. I know, I know, we all need all of them, but just one at a time this week. What is one thing that you can do this week? What is one thing that the Spirit of God is highlighting in your heart saying, I want that? And so maybe you're here this morning and you need to destroy this unity. Is there anything festering in your heart that needs to be addressed? Are there any hard conversations that need to happen? Are there any elephants that you can no longer avoid? Remember the gospel. Jesus died, literally died, to bring us together. And so far be it from us if we allow anything to divide us and separate us. Maybe you're here and you're like, Sam, I need a number two, man. I need to depend on God in prayer. Anxiety has stolen your joy. Worry has caused you to look to yourself and not to the Father who provides. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, pray like this. And he said, give us this day our daily bread. Go to the Father. 
Jesus has made a way so that we can come directly to him. Because of Jesus, you're a beloved child. Who doesn't like to help his child? How many of you, if your child came and said, I want a loaf of bread, you'd give him a rock? How many of you, if your child said he was hungry, you'd give him a snake out of spite? And you guys are saying, how much more will your heavenly Father love to give you what you need? Depend on God in prayer. Or maybe you're here and you say, Sam, this week I need to guard my thought life. I need to re-examine the guest list for the party in my head. You see, that's what Jesus wants. He is transforming you, body, soul, mind, and spirit to be like him. He's the one who he came and he said, you've heard it said to not murder. But I'm telling you, don't even have hatred in your heart. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, I don't even want you to have lustful intent in your heart. Jesus wants your heart. He wants the soil of your mind. And so this week, maybe you need to say, Jesus, even that is yours. And as we do these three things, church, by the grace of God, by the promise of our sovereign Lord and Savior, we will stand firm. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the word of God. We thank you that you speak to us. You don't send us out to go figure it out. You bring us in and you say, like this, my child. So thank you for these instructions. Lord, we receive them in humility. We acknowledge our own defensiveness and the pride of heart. And we say, you're right, God. Speak to us. Have your way. Because you speak to us, Lord. It's such a beautiful combination of love and truth. And we receive it well because we love you and we know that you love us. So Lord, would you help us to stand firm? Would you help us to not be moved off of the mark, off of our sure foundation of having Christ? Help us, Lord, to destroy this unity. May we be a church where every single ministry partner is empowered to destroy this unity. Father, I pray that we depend on you in prayer. Help us, Lord. Give us faith. Give us faith. And then, Lord, help us to guard our thought life. Help us, Lord, to only dwell on things, Lord, that will help us to stand firm. Help us to avoid the trap of saying, but is it sin? It's not about if it's sin. Is it on the guest list? That's a better question. So would you remind us of that this week? We love you, Father. We give you all of our, our lives, every aspect of who we are. Use us for your glory and change us into the image of Jesus, we pray. In his precious name we pray. And the church said, Amen. We want to thank you again for joining us for this week's sermon podcast. My name is Daniel, and I'm the music and creative pastor here at East Point Church. And if you were challenged, encouraged, or impacted in any way by this week's sermon, we would love to hear about it. It's your stories that encourage us and what we do, and we just want to celebrate what God is doing in your life. So you can go ahead and share with us at podcast at epeaston.com. Also, make sure that you subscribe to our channel to stay up to date with the latest sermons. Have a great week.